There's literally millions of lawyers in the world. The ABA said that in the last 10 years, the number of attorneys grew by 15% in the United States. But here's my question to you. How many men and women of the law are committed to the revolutions I described? How many will not bend to personal interest in corruption? Welcome back to the Humble Jurist Podcast. Today we're listening to Sharon Eubank, the worldwide director of Latter-day Saint Charities, the billion-dollar humanitarian arm of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She addressed the J. Reuben Clark Law Society at its annual fireside in 2020 and spoke about nine revolutions that she believes are paving the way for a feast of fat things, a future celebration with God and the human family. As a bit of a sidebar, hers is the most watched Law Society fireside on the Society's YouTube channel, where you can watch the entirety of her remarks. Here's more of what she had to say. I was a young humanitarian worker 20 years ago, and on the seventh floor of the church office building, there was a quote by J. Reuben Clark, right up by the elevator, so I saw it every day. Now, you know him because of the J. Reuben Clark Law Society and all of his work in the First Presidency and, the, and the, at the law school, but for me, he has given the quote that is the essential humanitarian welfare quote that every good humanitarian knows. So maybe you've heard it before, but it is. The real long-term objective of the welfare plan is the building of character in the members of the church, givers and receivers, rescuing all that is finest down deep inside of them and bringing these old-fashioned words, but it's so beautiful, and bringing to flower and fruitage the latent richness of the Spirit, which, after all, is the mission and purpose and reason for being of this Church. The nature of relief and development work is to be exposed to everything that's unjust, everything that's disastrous, and those circumstances are like a killing frost to the potential, that flower and fruitage in human beings, the finest that is deep down inside people. When those circumstances are so severe, they struggle even for survival. And so what does that look like? It looks like the tragedy of 10-year-old boys and girls that are being sent out to do menial work instead of going to school. It's the heartbreak of a death when doctors know what to do, but they don't have the medicine or the equipment to do it. It's the loss of potential when a 3-year-old doesn't get enough nutrition so that her brain can develop higher cognitive functioning. And it looks like the almost casual violence and abuse against people whose protection under the law is being subverted in some way, like that family in Curitiba that they talked about, losing their home because they don't have the, the proper legal, they don't have the money to get the proper legal papers. President J. Reuben Clark says that the mission and purpose and reason for being of the Church of Jesus Christ is to build up the character of givers and receivers by doing what will rescue the finest parts of each of us. And I believe that the genius of the J. Reuben Clark Law Society, named in his honor, is because it organizes and motivates those who practice law and lend their expertise and their faith and their experience to improve society in countless ways. So this year, the Church is beginning this wonderful decade of commemorating the restoration of all things. It was ushered in dramatically in 1820 when Joseph Smith, 
saw and spoke with the Father and the Son. And President M. Russell Ballard, in a January Ensign article, rehearsed some of the important ways that the Lord prepared the earth for the restoration. And I hesitate to even plagiarize a little bit of him, and not any of this is new, but I'm doing so tonight. I want to show over two millennia of time what the Lord is doing on this big macro vision, because it helps me understand what I need to do at the small level. So I want to build on his thoughts and describe some of these revolutions that some have come and others are still coming, and they will prepare the earth for the second coming. So I called it Nine Revolutionary Recipes for a Feast of Fat Things. If you don't understand that at the end of the talk, come and see me. <laughs> I resonate to the idea that the Lord is using revolutions to open up larger and wider opportunities for His children to connect back to Him through the gospel. So the first one I wanted to talk about, nobody has ever called it this before, this is just me. It's, I call it the revolution of the dead. But before Jesus was born, the emphasis was on knowing the only true God, a correct foreknowledge that the Messiah would come and that what his doctrine would be. And there was great emphasis on protecting those records that contained those prophecies and that doctrine about him. Once the atonement and the doctrine of Christ was an accomplished fact, then a series of these powerful revolutions almost relentlessly began to open up ways more and more for the children of God to hear about His plan and have the freedom to act for themselves. So if I ask you, how many people do you think, estimate, have ever lived on the earth in total? I recognize nobody is going to know this. You have to know when Homo sapiens stood erect and began to walk. I, there's lots of complicating factors. But there are some uh, scientists who have estimated that there are about 108 billion people who have ever lived. Well, how many people are on the earth right now? Yeah, almost 8 billion are alive right now. So you do the math and you can see that, oh, sorry. There's approximately 100 billion people who might be in the spirit world. And Jesus' visit to the spirit world immediately after his crucifixion was the opportunity to organize missionary work for those that didn't know the gospel when they were on the earth. It's a massive undertaking, 100 billion souls. Now we have President Joseph F. Smith and his revelation that's in section 138 to thank because we know quite a bit about this. From his vision, he was bowed down in sorrow from all of the deaths during World War I, from the Spanish flu, and from some deaths in his own family. And he had this revelation, and it's impressed upon me how many more people in the spirit world there are and how important this stage of development is. It's frankly much more relevant to the 95% of the inhabitants who did not hear about Jesus Christ during their mortality. The revolution of the dead, learning about Jesus Christ, continually loses, uses the exponential talents of all the prophets and the apostles and the missionaries and the ministers and the seers and the mothers and the fathers in all periods of time. The scope of it is bigger than I can imagine. This is a very crude slide, and I did it myself, and you'll know why. But Doctor, Section 138 talks about when Jesus died and he came 
to the righteous souls, and he organized his work to go to be preached to the people who were in, uh, on the other side of the spirit prison. And, it's, and it says who was there. It says our father Adam was there and our glorious mother Eve. And then it starts listing people, and I've taken a little license, but it says, and many of the righteous daughters who worship the true and the living God. So I listed some of them there. And then it says Abel and Seth and Noah and Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Elias, Malachi, Elijah, all the Nephite prophets, Joseph Smith, his own uncle, his father, Hiram, John Taylor, Brigham, Wilford, and all of the people who followed them. This is a pretty impressive collective missionary force. And I think about what they are doing. This weaves the eras and the families of Elohim's children together, both the living and the dead, into one great whole. So Moroni was right. Without this, the whole earth would be utterly wasted. So that's an important revolution that we don't always think about. The second revolution President Ballard talks about is changing from the use of cumbersome, labor-intensive tablets of stone, clay, or metal. If you wanted to keep a record, you baked a piece of clay, it got, it got wet, you wrote into a stylus using very condensed form of writing, and then it was done. It was heavy, it was difficult to change, it could only be in certain places at a time. The change from that to papyrus or parchment was a very important revolution because you could edit it. It was portable. Many more people could use these records. Many copies could be made. President Ballard said these writing materials made it easier for scribes to record God's word received through inspired prophets and apostles. And using these writing materials, many countless and unknown scribes diligently copied and transmitted and preserved sacred writings in multiple copies so that the flames of faith were never extinguished. Following this came the printing revolution. So Johannes Gutenberg was an instrument in the Lord's hand to increase knowledge and understanding and religious faith in the world. I don't know if he knew that, but it's the result of what happened. His press in 1439 ignited a printing revolution that changed the world forever because it facilitated the wider circulation of ideas and information, and those ideas became agents of change. Scholars estimate that about 30,000 books existed in Europe at the time of Gutenberg publishing his Bible on his own printing press. Within 50 years after that invention, 12 million books were found in Europe, and that's just the beginning. The Protestant Reformation utilized Gutenberg's invention to spread its ideas and bring particularly the Bible to the common people in ways that other generations never could have imagined. Following this revolution, the printing revolution was fed by an increase in literacy and a growing thirst among the common people of Europe to read sacred words of scripture in their own language. For centuries, many Europeans learned about the Bible mainly through sermons that were given by priests. But in the 15th and 16th centuries, religious reformers created new Bible translations in the common languages of Europe. So William Tyndale, and others, they gave their life in this revolutionary cause.
but the result was that by 1800, most families, including that of Joseph and Lucy Mack Smith, owned a Bible and read from it on a regular basis. In fact, many people learned to read by hearing it read at home and studying it for themselves. The political revolution, many of these earlier revolutions I'm describing paved the way for changing uh, politics and the democratic revolutions that swept across Europe and America between the 17th and the 19th centuries. The changing political climate in Europe and America gave people greater freedom to choose their own religious path. Religious freedom and individual rights were protected under the law, and this directly prepared the groundwork for the Restoration and with Joseph Smith in the United States. The technology revolution is a fulfillment of what was promised in Joel 2.28. As truth began to be restored, the Lord began to pour out his spirit among all flesh, including on those who were prepared to dream of new transportation and medical and communication technologies, and all of them moved the restoration forward in dramatic ways. As the Lord raised up his prophet, he also inspired men and women to invent transportation technologies, like canals and telegraphs and railroads and steam engines and airplanes, medical advances that eradicated disease and tamed pain and extended life and mitigated disabilities. And for a humanitarian worker, I'm very thankful for those, those revolutionary things that have not existed except maybe in the last 150 years. Communication innovations in the form of radio, television, internet, smartphones, machine translation, artificial intelligence, they all work to overcome distance and language and access. And you've seen this. You can be in one of the most remote places on the earth, and someone who is living below the poverty line will take a smartphone out of their pocket. It's so important to them to have that, that way of connecting with their family and with information. All of these revolutions, I believe, were greatly put upon the earth so that the gospel could go forth to all the world. Now I'm thinking today, I just read the, the news article about losing Clayton Christensen, who was a great friend to the Relief Society. He came and spoke to us often about his idea that has been called innovation disruption. I know that he didn't like that term because he said people focus on the disruption. <laughs> but what is happening with these revolutions I think is true. Innovation disruption is about a very small, ordinary, insignificant piece that is able to be transformative and it changes the whole industry or it changes the whole history. And I think in a lot of ways the Lord uses us. He uses Sharon Eubank or just or you or somebody who is not special, who is ordinary as a transformation change. And he says, by small and simple things, I will do my own great work. And he's using all of us as innovative disruptors. And I, I thank Clayton Christensen for his great work, his great life, and the ways that he made us think. I add to this a temple revolution. So I was born in 1963. How many temples do you think there were when I was born? There were 12. There were 12 temples then. All right, right now, there are 160 in operation. There are seven being renovated, 15 under construction, 35 announced. That's 217. That means 205 temples have been built or announced 
in my lifetime. And 114 of those temples have been founded in the last 20 years, since the year 2000. The church has the funding to do it. That's a miracle. The church has the people to be the presidents, the matrons, the recorders, the workers. That's a miracle. The world is peaceful and accepting enough that we can let them be built. It's a miracle. Millions of ordinances a year flow from these temples, and the work is fed by genealogy and family history and record preservation, largely facilitated by non-members of the church who feel the spirit of Elijah. That's unprecedented. This is priesthood work being quietly done by priestly people, as Moses envisioned. The world has never before had a million men, women, and children who hold an active temple recommend. I don't know what the actual number is, but think about the standard of sacrifice and consecration and morality and obedience to God's law that that statistic represents. That's revolutionary. This is not a good title. Let me just say ahead of them for this next revolution. But I called it the, oh, but let me read this. The time will come when there will be temples established over every portion of the land, and we will go into these temples and work for our kindred dead night and day. That's Lorenzo Snow, but when did he say it? 1870. That's a wonderful statement that we are seeing the fruits of today. Now, here's my badly titled revolution. I called it the man-woman revolution. I don't mean anything feminist about this. I don't mean anything controversial about it, but I think the world is very rarely free from the tensions of patriarchy and the abuse of the essential relationship that happens between men and women. And for millennia, people's rights have not been protected under the law. There may have been some true stints of interdependence between God, daughters, and sons that occurred in the history of the earth, but not many. But nevertheless, it's God's true pattern. It's his way, and he is restoring it along with everything else to the earth so that together men and women can finally build Zion. This is what the temple revolution is all about. The pattern is taught inside the temples. Zion can only be accomplished by men and women, each with their authority and power, working cooperatively together. We still have ways to go. In 1842, Joseph Smith was contemplating the building of the Nauvoo Temple. There it was, up on the hill, everyone was sacrificing, doing everything they could. But Joseph, and maybe only Joseph, knew that the Nauvoo Temple's function was not going to be the same as the Kirtland Temple's. And he needed to prepare both the brethren and the sisters for the specific ordinances and the roles that would be revealed there. So Joseph, at the founding of the Relief Society, he said, I now turn the key to you in the name of God, and this society shall rejoice, and knowledge and intelligence shall flow down from this time. This is the beginning of better days for this society. It's interesting to look into the history. For the 150 years before 1842, there are eight instances when women were able to vote, and four of them got rescinded right away. One of them is in Massachusetts so that a woman could vote one single woman one time in a town council. But after 1842, the history explodes with an interest and a desire on the part of people to guarantee these rights under the law, to have representation. And I believe when Joseph Smith turned the key, he turned it for all women all over the earth.
In fact, George Albert Smith says the same thing. He said, when the prophet Joseph Smith turned the key for the emancipation of womankind, it was turned for all the world. And from generation to generation, the number of women who can enjoy the blessings of religious liberty and civil liberty has been increasing. But it isn't enough to push the cause of women. It isn't about that as much as it is about what do we do with our rights? What do we do with our privileges? The Relief Society founding, as Joseph Smith turned that key, it has three purposes. The first purpose is to build faith, to build faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to help and support other people's abilities to worship and express their faith the way they choose. As was said in the introduction, if all people don't have religious faith, then nobody does. And part of Relief Society is to build faith on the inside and strengthen faith in the community on the outside. Another part of Relief Society is to strengthen families. We want to strengthen families in all their realities and build a foundation of faith with pillars of self-reliance so that they have what they need to, to meet their own requirements and to serve others. And the third purpose of the Relief Society, and I'm taking a quote from John Widsow. Someone asked him, relief from what? And he said, relief of illness, relief of poverty, relief of doubt, relief of ignorance, relief of all that hinders the joy and the progress of women. So Sister Jean Bingham, who's sitting here in the audience, she has spoken movingly and vividly about certain circumstances that inhibit the progress of men and women on the earth that are so difficult that they essentially stop spiritual progress cold. People can't engage with the covenant path because of these circumstances. And one of the ways that we can address those comes from a quote from the Gospel Topic Essays. It says, this interdependence of men and women in accomplishing God's work through his power is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ as restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. So I'm talking about the interdependence of men and women and how we can help that understanding grow. There's no program to address the four things that Sister Bingham talks about. She talks about malnutrition, abuse, literacy, and emotional distress. Those four things, there's not going to be a global initiative that we are going to address, but if we are aware, each of us in our circles has many opportunities at the local level with whatever unique professional and spiritual skills we have to bring solutions and resources to those circumstances because they affect us, they affect our families, and they affect people in our circles, and they stop us from progressing. The last revolution I want to talk about is the Zion Revolution. Oh. This, if you look carefully, there is a cruise ship down. I don't know what cruise line goes to Zion. I hope there is one. <laughs> the thing about this revolution that will create Zion, this step is going to be difficult and it's going to be messy because Satan uses all of those revolutions that we've talked about for his own twists and his own misery. So there's pollution from technologies that engulf the earth. Filth and debasement and inhuman acts are communicated to every remote corner of the earth using technology. Politics falls into brute violence, and human rights are violated for power. As opposition increases toward the end of the earth, 
The scriptures talk about a polarization that will happen that becomes stark. And it is not a polarization about Latter-day Saints and others. It's a polarization about either you believe in God or you don't. Either you're willing to work in harmony with others or you're not. Either you will keep the rule of law for the good of society or you won't. Zion will be built by those who are willing to unify their hearts and their minds for peaceful progress of all faiths, people who are willing to dwell in obedience to law and eradicate all kinds of poverty. And everything outside of Zion will eventually destroy itself because they aren't willing to follow those foundational principles. Latter-day Saint Charities is the collective humanitarian efforts of the Latter-day Saints themselves. So this is the way that we strive by being a giver or by being a receiver to address issues of poverty. And its work essentially is to lay the foundation stones of Zion. And I'm not just talking about the NGO, I'm talking about all of us that are trying to live the principles of Zion. So to share expertise freely so that we can be of one mind. We want to work side by side with others very different from us so that we can be of one heart. We want to keep the laws of heaven and earth so that we can dwell in righteousness. And we want to build up our characters so that there's no poor among us. I have shared this story in the Philippines, and I'm going to share it with you tonight because it's such a great, vivid example. In April of 2018, the Hernandez family was in Los Angeles, and they, it was Easter, and they were in Griffith Park. They were just having a picnic. And there were some of the boys and a couple of the littler kids had gone into some shed that was unlocked. It, was, it had been decommissioned. But anyway, they were in there, and they started jumping on the floorboards. And one of those floorboards broke, and Jesse Hernandez, who was 14 years old, fell through a four-foot-wide hole, 25 feet deep, and disappeared. And the kids just screamed his name, Jesse. No answer. All they can hear is running water. So one of the kids ran for their parents. Jesse fell in a hole. And the parents called 911 and they came. What had happened was that he'd been in a decommissioned shed that probably should have not been unlocked, and he broke through into the Los Angeles sewer system. So this kid has gone down into that hole and he's gotten caught in raw sewage that runs in this complicated network parallel to the Los Angeles River and out uh, toward the ocean. It goes under freeways. The 911 people, they thought, what are we going to do? How can we solve this problem? They got a map of the Los Angeles sewer system and they tried to project where he would have gone in this complicated network of systems, trying to figure out, can we get ahead of him and try and catch him before he gets into the machinery and the ocean and everything. They worked and worked. Somebody had an idea to take a surfboard and break it into little pieces and take GoPro cameras and duct tape them on and put those into the tunnels and let them go out through the different places. And then they transmitted back to a television van. So inside the van, they had 14 screens trying to watch where those cameras are going, looking for any sign of Jesse, any, a shoe, uh, anything, just to figure out which tunnel did he go by. And after hours, people are saying, just give up. I mean, it's sad, but he's, it's such a toxic environment, they wouldn't send anybody else down into the tunnel. And they just said, we're, we're just going to have to tell his family. But just as they were having this discussion, the guy in the van said, what's that? 
And on one of the tunnels, you could see just a brief four fingers that looked like maybe somebody touched the side of that wall with their fingers. It was the only thing they had to go on. So they followed that tunnel and they tried to project where would he be now? It's almost 10 hours later. Can you imagine what it's like if you're Jesse? <laughs> they figure he's somewhere near the I-5 and the I-10 juncture in Los Angeles. So they shut down the freeways. There's a giant manhole cover there and they open it up and the fire truck is there. It's 11 feet down and they shine a big construction light down there, hoping that they can get a worker down there and maybe stretch a net and see if they can find him. As they shine the light down, they see Jesse. He's at the bottom of that tunnel. He's wedged his foot in there and they lower a, 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 like a hose from the fire and they pull him up and he reeks. He's just, he just, he smells so bad. They use the hose to just spray him off. <laughs> they hand him a cell phone. He calls his mom. Now, if you're Jesse, it's been 13 hours. If you're Jesse, what do you say? He says, mom, I'm alive. Come pick me up. <laughs> now, I'm not going to draw the conclusions. You are smart literary lawyers, but you can see when President Nelson says, this is the greatest privilege of us, we get to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. President Monson says, to the rescue. You can make the parallels to that story. We all fall in the sewer and we can't get out. We need people to believe in us. We need people to have innovative ideas. We need people to project where we might be and try to catch us. And we need somebody to spray us off and let us call our moms and go home. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is for. It's what we all live for. It's happening to us. In your life, the question is, what do you desire? What do you desire most? There's literally millions of lawyers in the world. The ABA said that in the last 10 years, the number of attorneys grew by 15% in the United States. But here's my question to you. How many men and women of the law are committed to the revolutions I described? How many will not bend to personal interest and corruption? How many have made their vows in a holy temple to obey and consecrate so there will not be any poor among us? The scriptures teach that the great outcome of our mortal life is to be deeply connected to God and deeply connected to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, on, the, on these two great commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the question that was asked in the great council in heaven is relevant to each one of us. Jesus says, in the same way that he answered, whom shall I send? Every day you see burdens, you see resources that aren't connected. You see kids who aren't in school. You see neighbors who aren't functioning as they should or people who are standing and they should be sitting. So that question whispers and sometimes it rings, whom shall I send? I began tonight talking about these two millennia of history, trying to lift our vision around us of what's really important. President Dallin Oaks reinforced this idea when he said in 1991, the most important idea for any of us is that this life with all of its advantages and disadvantages is only temporary. It's part of a larger whole. Our challenge is to develop the perspectives and realize that the strength to act upon the really important achievements of this life are the things that carry an enduring consequence for the eternities to come. 
Let me just close with this passage from Doctrine and Covenants 58. It's my testimony, and it's the foundation that I've staked my intellectual and my spiritual and my physical desires on. And if you've heard me say it before, I hope that you'll hear me say it a hundred times more. This is DNC 58. Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning these things which shall come hereafter and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Remember this which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. For this cause I have sent you, that you might be obedient and that your hearts might be prepared to bear testimony of the things which are to come that you might be honored in laying the foundation and in bearing record of the land upon which the Zion of God shall stand, and also that a feast of fat things might be prepared for the poor. Yea, a feast of fat things, a supper of the house of the Lord well prepared, unto which all nations shall be invited, first the rich and the learned and the wise and the noble, and after that cometh the day of my power. Then shall the poor the lame and the blind and the deaf come in under the marriage of the Lamb and partake of the supper of the Lord prepared for the great day to come, that the testimony might go forth from Zion, yea, for this cause I have sent you. I bear my testimony that Jesus Christ is coming again, and we have the privilege and the responsibility of preparing the earth for him. May the work of Jesus Christ be in our hearts and our minds every day. May the J. Reuben Clark Law Society fulfill its mission to be a light unto the nations. And may we hold hands with other good people in our societies who want these same things. And may the Holy Ghost point us clearly to the things that each one of us can do so that we can prepare a feast of fat things for the poor. <laughs>